We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. Welcome to Rams Talk Radio. This is Derek C. Apollo, managing editor over at Rams Talk, and today our guest on the show, our Game of My Life Rams author, Jay Paris. Jay, welcome to the show. How are you today? Hey, doing great, Derek. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, let's get right into it. You know, what got you to go ahead and start this project? You know, I was a kid growing up in Orange County, and my uh, my uncle, my favorite uncle Frank, was a tough old Marine stationed at El Toro, and he was a big Rams fan. And back then, you could go to a Rams game at the Coliseum, and this is hard to believe once you see the prices nowadays, but if you are in uniform, you could get into the game for 50 cents, and you could bring six kids in with you. So on, on most days, or most Sundays anyway, I was that sixth kid, and I was able to get into the, get into the game. I would go on to be a sports writer, and, and those names never left me. You know, I, I, Gabriel, Mac. All those guys, Everett, Dickerson. So from being a little kid to following them all these years, I just was always a Ram fan. They left. I left as well, went to San Diego and covered the Chargers for 22 years. The Rams came back. I saw it as an opportunity to rekindle uh, the love affair I had with the team, as well to get a chance to reach out to some of these names that uh, 
you know, just, just hearing them now, Billy Truax, Jack Youngblood. I mean, I get goosebumps talking about them. So to be able to reach out, write a book, and let them pick their favorite game. You know, so often, Derek, a writer will have an article in mind, and he'll already have the premise or what he wants to write about. Instead, I, I turned the tables and said, hey, what's your favorite game? Which one would you pick? And the uh, and the choices can be surprising. Well, the, the choices were surprising. I was surprised to hear some of these guys talk about losses instead of, you know, wins. What kind of results did you have that surprised you? You know, I, I, I was a little bit surprised as well when, you know, Tom Mack, you know, just a, a stud. You know, there's no better lineman, but he remembers – uh, that 74 game against the Vikings, that title game where he was called for, uh, for moving, uh, infraction, uh, illegal motion that, that pushed the Rams back. They were unable to punch it in. Alan Page actually moved. Uh, the officials said, Hey, you know, they pointed to Mac and he, and he swore he didn't do it, but he bet his coach that, uh, he didn't, he didn't, uh, didn't move and, uh, the film proved likewise, but, you know, I'm surprised to uh, Fred Dreyer. You know, what a great career career he had, you know, before or after coming to the Rams. But what tickled his fancy so much was one time when Roman Gabriel's arm hurt. And they're sitting in the bowels of Soldier Field. And uh, the team doctor comes over to administer, a, you know, a little feel-good shot, if you will, in NFL parlance into an injury. And he hit the wrong nerve. Or he hit a nerve. And there's Roman Gabriel minutes before he's supposed to take the field. He couldn't raise his arm to, to comb his hair. They had to go to Pete Beathard and Dreyer, uh, you know, they got killed. And Dreyer picked that game, which was, a, which was funny of all the great games he had. So it just shows you when you think you know a guy, maybe you don't. Dennis Hare, another great story, old bird legs that Tom Mack always called him. Uh, he, his, his story, he remembered getting in that great fight, uh, at Shea Stadium against the Jets when Mark Gastineau finally got around Jackie Slater and, and sacked Vince, Vince Ferragamo. Of course, the Rams told him, you do that sack dance nonsense, Mark. We're coming after you. He started dancing. Jackie Slater went after him. And Dennis Hara, you know, he's been wrestling with Joe Klecko all day. That's no walk in Central Park either. He goes, I'm dead tired. But he said, if my guy goes, I got to go. He turns around, and there goes Slater, and it was on. And it was one of the biggest fights. It was the biggest uh, fight at that time in the NFL, fine-wise. 18 guys got fined. Everybody got fined. Except Dennis Hara. He and his big bull rush to, uh, to get at, at Gastineau. Gastineau stepped aside and, uh, Hara, uh, fell on his face and the film showed it and he's embarrassed about it to this day. What kind of access did the Rams actually give it to the players? So I noticed you really only had Johnny Hecker from the current team on there and then Kurt Warner for the greatest show on turf, but really it's a bunch of LA players from before the move. Yeah, and it, you know, it was, uh, we wanted to make that bridge or make that connection with Johnny Hecker to have a current player. And, uh, to be truthful with you, Derek, after the last couple of years, there weren't too many game of the life, uh, <laughs> candidates from, from a team that, that struggled so mightily. I remember last year hoping, uh, for this book to, to get Jared Goff in it. You know, well, he went 0 for 7 his rookie year. There's not a lot of game of my life's in there. So we went with Johnny Hecker, but, but it is true. It, it is, uh, LA centric. Uh, it's really where the, you know, I know the Rams have had three three places they've called home, four if you count Anaheim, and they're the only franchise that win a title in three different cities, Cleveland, St. Louis, and Los Angeles. But uh, these were the guys, too, that I remembered. And it's funny, Derek, if you go to a game now, and especially last year, but in the tailgating and in the parking lot and the stands, 
most of the jerseys are guys that are in the book or from that era yeah. because they're that two decade gap where, you know, you really didn't have a favorite Ram. So it's funny. You, you look out and you, you see all these older fans with Gabriel and the dryer and Mac jerseys and, and it, it makes you feel good that they kind of remember it like you do. What was your favorite story to tell? My favorite, you know, something about Jack Youngblood. I mean, to this day, he scares the heck out of me. No, not because he was a bad guy, just that intimidating force that John Wayne in the NFL and, and to be able to reach out to him. And, and sometimes uh, I've learned, you know, being in this business over 30 years, guys that you really admired as a kid or, or you, you saw from afar, sometimes when you get up close, you know, it's not such a rosy picture. They're not quite what you envision. Old Jack Youngblood, you know, he was as comfortable as a, you know, Old pair of blue jeans, if you will. You know, he was great on the phone and got to meet him and, and just hearing about him and, of course, him playing in the Super Bowl with a broken leg and him, <laughs> it, you know, he broke it against Dallas in the divisional game and, and he's underneath the Texas Stadium and he's got a broken leg and they take x-rays and the doctor comes over and tells him, hey, you know, Captain Blood, you got a broken leg. And he says, hell, I could have told you that. It's broke. Now tape it up. Let's go. And they go back and forth and back and forth. It's a funny tale in the book where, you know, the doctor says, I can't do that. I can't tape up your leg. And, and you're thinking of this great oath from a doctor. But actually, he admitted he couldn't tape up a leg. He didn't know how. He got Gary Germont, the assistant uh, trainer, if you will, to tape him up. Jack went out there. But what killed me was he played that game. And, of course, he played in, in the next week in the NFC title game. And he played in the Super Bowl. But in this day and age, this is going to be hard to believe, with that broken leg, he played in a Pro Bowl. <laughs> and you know nowadays how easily the guys will bail out on a Pro Bowl. For, for Jack Youngblood to do that, uh, that, that, that struck me as pretty funny. One quick real one, real quick one on Youngblood, Jack, was, was the Gatorade story. Yeah. And it, yeah, that, that one really was pretty good too. And, uh, I can tell it or we'll let the people read it, but just know that, uh, Jack Youngblood was very instrumental in probably the most popular sports dream that was ever invented. <laughs> well, we won't spoil it, folks, but it's a good read. And that, in terms of uh, the story of the Gatorade, though, that that com- I read, you know, I read his the, the recent biography done on him. I haven't gotten to read his original autobiography. I'm not sure if oh, okay. the, that story's in the original autobiography. So for me to read that story in the Gatorade, there, I, I couldn't help but laugh. <laughs> you, you couldn't help but, and of course the. His, uh, his reasoning on going to the Pro Bowl, you know, that's pretty logical, the way he explains it. So I think readers will really enjoy that. Which of these stories, though, was the toughest one for you to write about? Well, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. You know, it, uh, I don't know if tough is the right word, but, but Jim Hardy, the very first chapter, the very first Ram, Ram team in 1946, here's a guy that went off to the Navy and, and fought in the war and, and came home, and he was a star at at USC all those years, led him to two Rose Bowl titles. And, and most of the times when he was going against uh, UCLA, you know, for the Crosstown title or to get to the Rose Bowl, he was going against Bob Waterfield. And so he comes home and he serves his country and he gets drafted by the Washington Redskins. And instead of going off and probably having a pretty good pro career, he, he just, if you will, waves a white flag and says, I'm tired of leaving. I'm an L.A. guy. I don't want to go to Washington. He gets wind that they're going to move out here from Cleveland that year, so he they engineer a trade with the Redskins and Jim Hardy, who, who's still alive and at, uh, in his 90s, and he still drives to, to practice each week. And USC season going on, we're just an amazing man. But uh, really, for the love of his family, that he had a growing kids and growing family, and the love of the city, he wanted to stay put. 
Unfortunately, that put him in direct competition with Bob Waterfield, his old buddy that he didn't like all that much from the USC UCLA days. So uh, Hardy really almost sacrificed part of his career just to stay home because uh, Waterfield had just won the rookie uh, rookie of the year and the MVP the previous year when the Rams won the title in Cleveland. Uh, Hardy to this day says that was the dumbest move I ever made, but he got to stay home and uh, he was honored before the game this past Sunday on Veterans Day weekend. And uh, what a great, what a great guy. Another question you know, that was the Jim Hardy thing was 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 interesting. Read I I have to be honest when I think of Waterfield, I think of his rivalry with Van Brocklin. Right. I don't, I don't think of Hardy. So that was a really interesting just first session there to go over. But also going through this book, the thought occurred to me, what was the actual process for you of just getting all these guys? That's a lot of moving and shaking you had to do, a lot of contacts you had to make to uh, to get these guys. Um, and is there anybody else that you wish you could have gotten? Yeah, there, you know, for some reason it just didn't work out with Jackie Slater. You know, I, I would hope to get him. And uh, I've got Mississippi roots and so does he. And we, we tried to make it work. It, it just didn't quite quite work out. But it was just a series of phone calls, a series of emails, and uh, the Rams were helpful as well in, in providing some direction and, and where to get some guys. Uh, kind of neat part about it, because they finished uh, their L.A. stint, if you will, in Anaheim, a lot of these guys stayed in the Orange County area, you know, uh, Everett and, and guys like that, Dickerson and, and, and Lansford and Leroy Irvin, I mean, Johnny Johnson. Some of those guys were still in the area, so, so that helped a little bit. You know, just reaching out on various social platforms uh, – one little funny story, obviously not in the book, but I got got a hold of Gabe through an email, and uh, he, you know you get an email back from Roman Gabriel, and if, you know I'm I'm ten years old all over again, you know I couldn't believe it. So we, we corresponded, and he was very nice uh, supplying some pictures too. But for some reason, I am now on Roman Gabriel's uh, email list when he's sharing all his corny jokes with all his other old buddies <laughs> down there in North Carolina. So I get the Roman, I'll get these you know off color jokes or whatever. Or, uh, uh, a picture of somebody maybe doing something they shouldn't, and it's all of Roman Gabriel's friends, and then uh, jparis8 at aol.com at the bottom of it. So that's pretty funny, I thought. But you know what? That's also priceless, and it's, it's, that's freaking Roman Gabriel, man. Exactly. I would exactly. I would never, ever, ever want to get removed from that email list. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not Roman, and, and he's sharp. And, uh, you know, I think Roman, too, he illustrated that connection with uh, – the Rams had with Hollywood back in that day. And, and L.A. was, a you know, it's popping now, but it was a popping place. And the Rams were popular. And, and the guys, you know, went and they were on Gilligan's Island. And they were in movies. And they, they did they did go to red carpet stuff. And the story, I think uh, your listeners will enjoy on Gabriel being in, being in the undefeated as Blue Boy, the, uh, the adopted native uh, American son of John Wayne. As Roman loves to say, he's half Filipino. So... That's where his dark complexion comes from. He's a long way from a, a Native American, but he, he loved John Wayne. And, and I think, too, what it, it illustrates, those guys were not only um, getting their face in front of a camera with a red light on, they were making some money. You know, back in the mid-60s or so, they were, they were well paid, but they weren't like today. And, and Gabe even did his own stunts because he would get paid uh, twice as much. He'd get paid more anyway. And, you know, the best advice was the other stuntman just telling him, if you see John Wayne, do not call him Duke. He'll let you know when you can do that. Of course, Gabe being Gabe, right when John Wayne walked in, is, hey, Duke, how you doing? And uh, <laughs> John Wayne got a kick out of it, and uh, they were friends for a long time. Now, talking about the later years, Hecker, Kurt Warner. Right. 
you know, you mentioned the fact that you was really L.A. centric. What made you go that route instead of trying, you know, really focusing also on some St. Louis players like, you know, Torrey Holt, Marshall Falk, or was just I, I think some of it, uh, Derek, was was them coming back to L.A. too and kind of rekindling that that L.A. Uh, love affair they had with the fans out here. But you know, you gotta gotta tip your hat. That's that's the only place they they won a Super Bowl to, to cap the '99 season in St. Louis. Uh, they certainly got to one out here, but the Steelers took care of them on that one. And and you talked about painful ones to write. You know, uh, going over that Super Bowl, Rod Perry. Uh, now Rod yeah. Perry is one. That was this game to remember. As you said to kind of start the podcast, you know, you're surprised at what these, what games these guys go to bed with still every night. And, you know, you think it's the, the biggest triumphs, their highest highs, but sometimes those lowest lows uh, trump everything. And, and there's Rod Perry talking about jumping in front of that stalwart pass, not doing what he's told everybody else he ought to do all those years. He, he, he got beat by a Hall of Famer and, and that's what he says. And that's kind of how he digests all the things. So, you know, it's, uh, God, you could write a million chapters on the, on this franchise that goes back so long ago. It's, it's just, uh, I'm, I'm glad these guys got their story out and it's neat hearing from them and it seems like they're appreciative as well. Now, you, uh, focus on the, this, you know, like you said, the word LA centric, this love affair at these players, the fans have with these players and now getting to hear their stories. What do you see happening in LA with this, with this return of the Rams? I see it, uh, building. I see it, uh, a, a, a new fresh team with a young, energetic coach. I see a, a, a fan base too having to be, um, to re- be rekindled and be refired up. I mean, 20 some years that, you know, there's 20, I have a 24 year old son. He's not really a Rams fan. He doesn't know about the Rams. I mean, they don't mean that much to him and, and he's not alone in that. A, a lot of kids drifted off. So I think there's going to be work to be done, but I think, uh, LA loves a winner just like every other city does. But they also like uh, how you win. And there's a reason why Showtime was so popular, not only Lakers putting up banners, but in how they do it. And with the, all the NFL, you know, skewed toward offenses anyway, to have a, a young quarterback, a running back, you know, options on the outside and a, a great new left tackle in Whitworth. I mean, they're building. But I think where you're really going to see, Derek, is when this, you know, cronky um, world opens or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> in three years this place you know you can't say it's going to put jerry world to shame but you know la is on the cutting edge of a lot of things especially in the entertainment industry and how you present entertainment and it's going to uh, it's going to be something so i i think it's building i certainly would rather be in the ram shoes than, than the charger shoes at this moment you know they do have that that legacy that history and, and they're playing so much better ball now the coliseum you know people kind of poopaw you know would you know sixty thousand yesterday sixty five thousand the Coliseum always looks empty unless you've got ninety thousand people there you know so that's that's some the optics can be a little different and let's be clear the Coliseum's a terrible place to see a football game I mean there's more history there than anywhere it just oozes with it but it it there's some challenges to see a game there for what fans expect these days if you know what I mean so you know that they're getting sixty thousand and and that the buzz is building. You know, they're, they're, they're heading in the right direction, but when that new stadium opens, you know, knowing LA, knowing, you know, it's almost as much as, uh, being seen as going to the game and seeing the action, I think the Rams are in for a good long run. Now, it's interesting the way you're taking that view because when we did the podcast last night and, you know, I covered Twitter for, for our site yesterday as well, and I'm right. seeing all these different comments and some of it's coming from those folks in St. Louis and so I need sure. to, you know, take that with a grain of salt. 
talking about how look at the attendance out there, and you know that the Rams uh, distributed 60,032 seats, um, tickets, sorry. Right. 60,032 tickets, not the 65. Immediately you're hearing, okay, well, what's wrong? Why can't this team sell out? And from our point of view, is it's going along what you're saying is it takes time. You know, this team came in here and last year came in right away, and they were horrible to watch, 4-12. and 12. That's not the best way to endear yourself to your, you know, to your city. And you fire a coach who probably should have been fired before that, to be honest. And now you're starting fresh here. And now you got to re-earn the, that those that trust. But then you mentioned the Coliseum, and you mentioned the very same things that we're hearing people complain about. That's not the great place to watch a game. It the parking there is horrible, and so on and so forth. So I, I actually I agree with you. I think that's where it's going. I think once that new stadium opens, it's going to be a floodgate for the LA fan base. You know, I, I see what you're saying, and, and to your point, if they would have had this year last year, it'd been crazy. You know, because a lot of people were hey. You know, there's something new on the shelf. Let's give it a look. You know, let's kick the tires. Let's try that new product. A lot of people did that last year, and they saw. He goes, these guys are not only bad, but they're boring. And <laughs> worse than that, in L.A. is a cloudy day at the beach. So that that didn't really shine. And and you got to remember too. You know, the old line is when they came last year, they were you know the second most popular pro team in town next to USC. So you know, I, I don't want to quite go there, but uh, USC has a, a heck of a fan base and. They can fill up that place as well, or 65,000, whatever they cap it at. So, you know, yes, they're not uh, uh, falling over the last row into the Rose Gardens at Exposition Park, but I think the, the buzz is there. It's building. They're winning, and uh, they're going to be just fine. Well, they can look at it this way. At least they're not the Chargers this year. That's right. Now, that, that's right. You want to uh, look at the other end of the spectrum, the, the fight for L.A. L.A. has been the two haymakers absorbed by the Chargers as they uh, – they continue to struggle to to get in, to gain any ground here. Now, I also saw that you know, just so the fans know, you wrote a book on the charges as well. Exactly. It's, it's really a, a two part tandem here. What made you focus on both teams? Uh, the Chargers was the just uh, the familiarity with them. I covered them for twenty years, and I covered everything from their their super unlikely Super Bowl run in nineteen ninety four. Uh, to when they went one and fifteen under Mike Riley in two thousand. So uh, it was a wide range of guys and. And it's just the great history of the Chargers, too. I mean, you know, Lance Allworth, Ron Mix, uh, go back to those AFL days, even when they played in L.A., Paul Lowe bringing back the, the original kickoff for, for a touchdown in their first game. So, you know, while while San Diego certainly doesn't have the championships, doesn't have the, the Super Bowl titles, they had uh, championship players. And if you have a chance to sit down and talk to Dan Fouts and Charlie Joyner or LaDainian Tomlinson, I mean, there's some – decorated names in that franchise and and it was fun to do and and i always like to see the pride in these older guys eyes Derek. i mean it still means something to these guys and uh you know these memories are in there and, and just to have them get that chance to to maybe share it with the fans and share it with the readers it, it seems like a, a good way to go and, and the charger the charger players a lot of people are spending a lot of in, energy hating the chargers you know, maybe hate some of the ownership stuff, but those old players and even some of the players that I know on the field today, it's tough to root against some of those guys. So it's an opportunity for those older guys to, to share what still means means so much all these years later, and they're thrilled when you reach out to them. Well, that kind of brings me to a question here. Uh, you mentioned covering the Chargers for 20 years, and right, you wrote a book about them, and you wrote this book about the Rams, and you've been you know you've been watching the Rams for your life basically. Right. Pretty much. Uh, 
how does this thing hold? How, does, in your view, how does this shake out in LA between these two teams? It's it's an uphill fight, and uh, this thing couldn't have gone any worse for the uh, NFL or the Chargers. And I think they they overstated the the ability that to LA not to support two teams. They you know there's ten pro teams in town for goodness sakes. They can support professional sports, but to to uh, acquire liking again for the NFL. And you got to remember, 20 years these guys have been sitting at the at their beach bar with a big screen and sunny day and and watching watching games and to ask him to to pay uh, you know the the highest ticket prices in the league, which, you know, the Chargers are, are charging is in that stub-up center in the soccer stadium. And for them to continually to, to not play good football, uh, it's a tough sell. And it's going to be a tough sell going forward. Now, they're, they're in this for the long term, they keep saying, and, and they too think they're going to uh, shine when, when that new stadium opens, and even if they are only a tenant. But, you know, the road the Chargers are going up to is much steeper and, and a lot more uh, slippier. <laughs> if you will, than, than what the Rams have. But will it work? We'll see. I think it'll work for the Rams for sure. But if the Chargers are winning and, and they're exciting, I mean, there can be a niche. You know, the, the it can be the Clippers to the to the Lakers like like the Clippers are. But, you know, they're, they're never going to be a top dog. It's, it's a long pecking order in that L.A. sports landscape. And the Chargers have really gone from alienating one fan base that supported them for nearly six decades to go to a fan base that says, why are you here? You know, so... It's a it's a weird dynamic, and uh, I really don't know the real answer. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out because you rarely see the NFL stub its toe, and in this case, it looks like it has so far. Well, it seems like they've been stubbing their toe a lot of late. Jeez. Yeah, um, pretty much. <laughs> that said, you know. it's still a $15 billion industry, and, and when somebody complains about a percentage point being a half down or a rating a tick off here and there, I have to chuckle. Uh, these guys make money. they got a big pile of money. And they usually end up walking out with both both pocket stuff with it. That's kind of why I'm looking at the whole issue with Jerry Jones and all those guys right now with a, a grain of salt. They're going to figure right. it out. There's too much money involved. You know. <laughs> those guys get to be billionaires by you know making too many dumb financial moves. And yeah. and you know everybody's laughing at Spanos and pointing at him. And and yeah, it's not working. But yeah, his family invested forty million dollars in nineteen eighties, and now he's sitting on a two billion dollar asset. So, you know, if that's being dumb, maybe uh, me and you to take a slice of that any day of the week. Oh, jeez, man, I think I would. <laughs> but you know, I do question the decision making. You know, especially since the Chargers arrived a year later than the Rams, gave the, the Rams a, a year to actually put some roots back in the city. And I do question. What else could have been done in San Diego? We hear conflicting reports and nothing else could have been done. Or So I cannot forget, I can't get out of the back of my mind that the Chargers left L.A., and part of that was the popularity of the Rams all those years ago. Exactly. I was Baron Hilton's quote when he left town, you know, or Paris Hilton's grandfather, maybe more people know him that way. But Baron, he said, I can't compete with the Rams, and that's why they did go to San Diego. But for not being able to work down here is a complete smokescreen and hogwash. Uh, Spanos organization was, was really inept at, at building a football team. So to think you were going to give them a billion dollars to, to become urban planners all of a sudden in downtown San Diego was a bit of a stretch. And, you know, all I know is San Diego is an international city, is sunshine all the time, a Super Bowl-ready city, and had a fan base of 60 years. If that isn't good enough for the NFL – I'm not quite sure what else they can do. If they couldn't subsidize or help, you know, build a stadium more with a $15 billion industry, you know, that's kind of on them. 
And if, you know, I know people laugh at California and everything a lot of times about our high taxes and the wacky stuff we do. But let's be clear. Three California cities told the NFL to go pound sand. Uh, Oakland wasn't going to give them all that money. They're gone. Uh, LA, you know, there's a reason why the Rose Bowl and Coliseum built in the early 1920s are the, still the, 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 the new stadiums in town. LA wasn't going to give them that money, a private deal. And then San Diego told them to go jump in the lake too. So, and in that regard, California is probably the only state that has really stood up to the NFL. Somebody might say, well, yeah, but it cost you your team. Well, well yeah, I guess it did. But, uh, you know, I don't think uh, the NFL played their hand in San Diego well at all. And uh, we'll see how it works out. But that's a heck of a market just to, to turn turn around and ignore, and especially how the how the Chargers did it without offering an olive branch or, or to those dedicated fans of six decades say, hey, we're going to L.A. It didn't work out here. You know, we'll figure out who to blame later, but come along on the journey with us. Let's come on. Let's go. Let's make this a, a Southern California powerhouse. And and the team uh, all, all did all but extend its middle finger to the San Diego fan base and said, hey, we're L.A. now, baby. We don't need you. Let's kind of come back at them. I mean, we, yeah, when you arrive in L.A. with the whole battle for L.A. thing going, that cannot feel good to the San Diego fan at all. Yeah, and, and it it, the rivalry between San Diego and LA is, you know, it's, it's one sided. San Diego does hate LA. LA loves San Diego because it's fun to come to. But it was just that a, the, the Spanos family and, and they just, they just, it was like a mom and pop operation in a, in a big corporate world. I think the NFL kind of outgrew the Spanos as well. Cause Derek, let's be clear. The Chargers had the only NFL franchise south of San Francisco for two decades. I mean, this could have been a regional powerhouse. They could have been bringing busloads of people then from L.A. They could have marketed Mexico. They could have done a zillion different things. Instead, they uh, just said, we're the Chargers, we're the NFL. In that sense of entitlement, I guess they got them to L.A., but it, it, was, it was an odd way to play that card, I'll say that. Yeah, I, I really think that the, in that context, the Spanos family, uh, well, they messed up. There's no yep. other way to say it. They messed up. You know, you, know, the, you mentioned the, the NFL, too, with this. And just from, you know, from, we've talked about it several times in the show. The idea that at this day and age where cities are struggling with to fund hospitals, right. you know, to, to pay for police departments, to expect now these cities go out there and pay for these owners, it, that that's not going to happen much anymore. I don't see that happening in other stadiums down the line. You know, a great example now I think is a team to watch will be the Browns, and their, right. lease, their lease will be ending in Cleveland in, two, in uh, just 12 years. And what's going to happen when it comes to that Browns franchise again in 12 years when they probably start talking about a new stadium or, or renovating that stadium in, in about, you know, five, six more years. That's going to be a team to watch in terms of, because they've already lost the Browns once, what happens right. again? You know, other cities like that in the, in the Rust Belt cities, you know, I would say St. Louis, but we already lost St. Louis in this equation. What's going to happen when, when they come up for renovations and these cities that, you know, had fallen on hard times, Detroit comes back to mind here. What's going to happen then as well? Yeah, it does seem the tide has turned a little bit, but I, I think you also have to be cognizant that a lot of those cities hang their hats on that NFL team, and that's an intoxicating uh, aphrodisiac, if you will, of, of having an NFL team. Where maybe these California cities say, "Yeah, NFL team is cool, but hey, we're heading down to the beach. You want to go? Or, you know, <laughs> salt or no salt on the margarita at the club? You know, there's a lot of things to do where maybe other cities uh, that wouldn't be as prevalent, but." You know, again, everybody laughs at the NFL, but I think somebody did a, a, a survey. I think they got $10 billion or something crazy in municipal funds by using the L.A. card all those years and using L.A. as leverage. 
and having all those teams have a, an escape, if you will. You know, will San Diego become that? Possibly, but it's certainly clear that uh, California voters have no appetite to subsidize a $15 billion industry that plays 10 times a year. And that's that's crazy to me because, in my view, L.A. is a Super Bowl city, and, the, yeah. and they, they missed the boat on getting a team back there quickly. And you know San Diego is a Super Bowl city. Right. I and, mean, and so, could, yeah, it's interesting that they didn't come back sooner, but it goes back again. To, you know, they would have loved to have been in L.A. Yeah, really, it came down to, Derek, is that the NFL realized that it needed L.A. more than L.A. needed the NFL. I mean, it's great the Rams are back and everything, but, you know, there weren't rallies of 50,000 people in the streets or anything. You know, I mean, yeah. they're back and, and everybody loves it. But I think the NFL finally say, hey, you know, this isn't Podunk. USA we're dealing with or a city that, that needs the NFL as much and, and they wanted to get back to the entertainment capital of the world and, and they're here and I'm, I'm sure it's going to work and, and the way the Rams are playing, uh, they deserve the red car, carpet treatment, that's for sure. Well, let's get back to your book here before we, we uh, shut down the shop for tonight. With your book Game of, the Lo- Game of My Life Rams, did you when, you, when you came up with this project, did you envision it going the way it went in the end with, you know, 20 different players talking and giving their stories and breaking down what their lives were like at that time. Did it work out the way you want it to work out? You know, I think for the most part, you know, there's always guys that you wish you would have, you know, been able to touch base. We talked about Slater and maybe a few other guys, but it always surprised me. I think one, because of uh, the game they pick and really getting that backstory. And there's always a backstory. And uh, Kevin Green, you know, talking about the night before they played uh, Joe Montana and the 49ers, he was watching Apollo Creed you know, dancing around Rocky saying, you can't get me, Rocky, you can't get me. And then for him to go out and he sees Joe Montana and Dwight Clark playing catch on the sideline the next day. And, uh, you know, he goes over, Kevin Green does and starts yelling at Joe, you can't get me, Joe, you can't, you know, just, and Montana goes, who the hell's that guy? He doesn't know who he is, you know. <laughs> so that was a cool backstory. And, and Dennis Harrod, you know, maybe I didn't know Mike Lansford was going to be so funny. I don't know why, because if you're kicking barefoot, you know, please. <laughs> you know, so his stuff about Georgia, you know, he gave me so many Georgia stories and I could only use a couple of them, but he, he was really fun to be around. And it, it's neat when you see these guys that, uh, you know, that you, you hope that we're good guys and, and they end up being good guys. And I don't know if that's a surprise or not, but you never know. And, and you think, you, you know, sports and athletes, you think you know somebody and, and then you start chatting with them. It, it turns out different, but I'd, I, I'm just glad we were able to get to extend it all the way from the first team in 1946 with Jim Hardy to the current team with Johnny Hecker. And I'd be remiss in, in not mentioning Dick Emberg, who uh, really his, his voice, that smooth voice, that, that's who I grew up on with, with Gabe and, and Bass and all the guys. And he was their announcer from 1966 to 1977. And you talk about uh, these players getting that big break to have their game of their life. I mean, Dick Emberg was a rookie. He was doing channel, you know, KTLA news in LA on the weekends. I think he got a chance to, to get the Ram job and, you know, it worked out pretty well for him. So for him to, to share his thoughts as well. And, and he got excited talking about it too, like the players do. And it's amazing how, how the years are peeled away once the subject is brought up and suddenly everybody's back at the Coliseum again and they're wearing the old uniforms and it's Roman Gabriel against Johnny Unitas with 90,000 people and, uh, Shoot, I get goosebumps talking about it. Well, I, one more question for you, I guess. Sure. It comes to my mind here is what next? What, what is your next project going to be? Uh, you know, I'm running out of selling California teams, so uh, <laughs> I guess there's always the Raiders. Uh, might do something with the Dodgers. Got a few other coals in the fire on, on that vein. So 
I'm uh, always looking for another project. I'm enjoying getting out and talking to people about that. This one, I'll tell you, when, when you do these book signings, Derek, you, people come up and I feel like I'm a bartender sometimes. They start telling me their life stories and uh, how they went there with their dads and, and just that connection and that sport. I, I think what this is also underlined is uh, sports is a great uh, common denominator in, in all the different people it draws and, and uh, ath- athletics can, uh, can do a lot of things. And it can can uh, maybe make you do stuff you didn't think you could do, like uh, you know Leroy Irvin in Chapter 12. He brought back two punts for a touchdown, which is a record that's going to be tough to tie, let alone break. You know, but the backstory on that one is he stayed out till 4:30 the night before in Buckhead in Atlanta, uh, going clubbing, and an old linebacker coach didn't tell on him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have played in the game, <laughs> which ended up being the game of his life. So you know, hearing these stories and it's uh, it warms your heart, and I'm. I'm always on the outlook for a, a good idea, and I can't wait to hear one from you for me. Oh, for me? Oh, <laughs> well, you know, personally, I, I've long considered and, and been quietly working on my own Rams book project uh, project for one day, and that's you know, one of my big dreams is to write a you know, write a book about the Rams. You got um, it. Well, you, me and I'll copy edit it for you. How's well, that? <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Um, <laughs> all right, so folks, this is game my life. Rams, Memorable Stories of Rams Football by Jay Paris. You'll get a forward in there by Dick Enberg, the legendary Dick Enberg. You can get this. Well, hey, you know what, Jay, you tell them yourself. Where can people get your book? You got it. It's at the uh, L.A. Coliseum uh, Team Store. It's uh, on Amazon.com, of course, and, and other L.A. area bookstores. We're going to be out in Manhattan Beach on November 25th at uh, 1.30 having a discussion and, and signing books and talking Rams football. And we'll be at the uh, iconic Romans, uh, V-R-O-M-A-N, possibly, yes, Romans in Pasadena, great bookstore. We're going to be there as well on December 14th. So come on by, uh, you know, sign up a book or, or just share your Ram story, which is great because, you know, here's my 20, but I guarantee you these people that come up, they've got 20 of their own. And, uh, boy, we'd love to see you and uh, come on over and stick out your hand and love to say hi. Well, I wish I could be one of them. I'm, I'm- that plane goes out west too. Let's go. <laughs> well, New Year's. New oh, Year. Yeah. The, the, Ram, the Rams talk crew is going out for the New Year's game of the 49ers. Oh, okay. So if you're at the game, we'll catch you. The yeah. um, game my life Rams. You can also, by the way, for those of you guys who are listening, I found this out because it popped up on my Kindle. It is available in ebook form. So if you don't want a hardback form, well, one, shame on you. But two, go ahead and get the Kindle version as well. Yeah, the Kindle version is fine. It's just a little harder to to sign the uh, contents page, but we'll work something out. Don't worry about that. <laughs> <All> right, <laughs> Jay, thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. We, we uh, really enjoy going down memory lane, and we know, hey, hopefully we'll have you back on the, on the show again soon. Hey, that's it. I got another two hours of material here. That's, okay, oh. we'll see you for next time. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. thanks for having me on, Derek. That's right. awful nice of you, and uh, look forward to seeing you. And uh, as they say out here, uh, horns up. The horns up. All right, for our listeners, this is Manager Derek C. Paul for Rams Talk for Jay Paris. Thanks for tuning in. You can't 
control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.